What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this rip of TFTC. I forget the number off the top of my head, but I think it's like 344. 344. Sat back down with Luke Roman. He was on the show back in March. It's only been four months, five months, four months since he was last on, but I did think it was good for us to catch up now considering the conversation we had then right after uh, the West lobbied sanctions, levied sanctions on Russia uh, and the inflation situation that's unfolded since then and and what we may see going forward uh, in regards to energy specifically. Uh, It was a fascinating conversation. I think Um, you guys are going to enjoy it. This was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is here to build products the right way on a Bitcoin standard. They leverage Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties throughout everything they do. That is the crux of their product suite is the fact that they are allowing individuals to hold keys, whether it be their loan product, which allows you to hold one key in a two or three multi-seat quorum so that you know that your SATs aren't being rehypothecated throughout the duration of that loan. Uh, you get dollars uh, in, in return for putting Bitcoin up as collateral. And again, you get that visibility and so that you know that you aren't going to wake up one day and find that Celsius, uh, what Celsius users found out, Celsians as they're called, uh, you're not, you're not going to wake up one day and say, oh, where's my Bitcoin? And Celsius is going to go, oh, we actually gave it to three hours capital and uh, they lost it all. Sorry. Um, we're going to go through bankruptcy and, and try to try to get that back to you at some point in the future. Probably not, but we're going to try. Uh, that's not going to happen at Unchained because of the way they leverage Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties. They have that loan product. They have their vault product. Um, they're rolling out by Bitcoin as well. Uh, they have an IRA product. Uh, I think what the last few months has shown is that the design choices that Unchained Capital has made for their product suite, for their customers, making sure that their their funds are secure and segregated at all times is, is turning out to be a very wise design decision on the Unchained Capital um, team there. And so if you want to check out Unchained, get on board onto a vault. They have a concierge team that's going to allow you to do that. And get you set up rather quickly. Go to unchained.com slash concierge. Uh, this trip was also brought to you by good friends at Brains. <laughs> Brains. Don't be an idiot. Come on, we've been through this before. Car's laughing in the background. Don't be an idiot, freaks. If you have an ASIC that is compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware, and you're not running it, you're an idiot. Your father-in-law is going to look down at you. Your wife's going to think you're less of a man. And the sats in your Bitcoin public addresses are going to be lower than they potentially could be. Go listen to the episode I recorded with Edward Evenson. I believe it's the episode before this, right before this one with Luke Roman. We go over what Brains OS Plus firmware does for miners that are running it. Uh, you can go to brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com and download the idiot-proof software. Download Brains OS Plus, OS Plus, OS Plus firmware and prevent yourself from looking like an idiot. It's that simple. They also have insights.brains.com, uh, their blog, and there's, I believe there's some announcements coming. I'm actually going to sit down with Jan from Brains this Friday, later this week. That episode will be out next week. So be on the lookout for that as well. Brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. This was also brought to you by our friends at Hoddle Hoddle. 
They are also leveraging Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties to bring you a lending platform. Lend.hodlhodl.com is no KYC, no AML, peer-to-peer lending. You put your Bitcoin up in a two or three multi-sig escrow. You hold one key. Your counterparty in the trade holds another key. And HODL HODL holds the third key. Since you have that one key, you have visibility into the wallet and you know that your funds aren't being rehypothecated like they were at Celsius, they were at Voyager, like they were at other places. HODL HODL doesn't have the ability to do that. It's peer-to-peer, no KYC, no AML. You get stable coins in return. As long as you pay it back, you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. Lend.hodlhodl.com. And they're throwing the Baltic Honey Badger Conference in Riga, Latvia. In a little over a month, uh, about uh, 45 days from now, uh, I'll be there. Go to honey, honey, BalticHoneyBadger.com. Buy your tickets there. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at Upstream Data. Are you an at-home miner? Are you mining up on, on the well pad? Are you at a utility? Got some excess electricity and you're looking to mine? Upstream Data is here for you. You're covering the whole stack from individual at-home miner who wants to stack KYC free sats to utility companies to upstream oil and gas companies. I am a happy upstream data customer. I have a 50 kilowatt hash hut uh, that, is, that is using stranded natural gas to mine Bitcoin right next to where some cows are grazing. I actually posted a video of that on Twitter last week if you want to see what that operation looks like. Again, I've been running that for more than six months. And the only time we've ever had downtime is when we need to change the oil in the generator. And that takes like 30 to 45 minutes, if that. So very high quality product, the hash shuts are. I have the 50 kilowatt unit, but they have much larger units as well, all the way up to 900 kilowatts. And I believe I saw an even bigger design. They had the black box for the at-home miners. You plug it in, it's soundproof. It takes care of the heat for you. you put your miners in, you can mine at home. And I believe they designed a bigger black box as well. The initial black box design comes with the ability to put two miners in. And this new one, I think it goes much higher than that, around 12. Could be wrong, though. Don't quote me on that. If you want to get a black box and you want to get a deal on it, use the code FREAKS for 5% off. Go to upstreamdata.ca to find the black box there. Uh, and if you do wind up buying a hash shot or a couple of hash shots, generators, ASICs, they got it all for you. They're going to take care of it all from the at-home miner to the, at, uh, uh, to the large-scale miner upstream or behind the meter at a utility company. They'll get you gensets. They'll get you huts. They'll get you ASICs. Upstreamdata.ca. Use the code FREAKS for 5% off the hash, or excuse me, not the hash shot, the, the black box. And enjoy this rip with Luke Roman. It was a good one. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Marty Bent back after a hiatus, after a little paternity leave on the interview series. This is our, our first recording in about two weeks here. 
decided to take a little break, spend some time with the newborn, but I'm very happy that we're coming back from paternity leave with Luke Roman. Luke, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back on, Marty. It's great to be here. Congratulations, by the way. It's, uh, it's awesome. Thank you. No, I'm uh, a little pre-recording powwow talking about our sons. It's, uh, it'll be very exciting when I get to, uh, to the stage that you're at with your boys, but I'm going <laughs> to enjoy the moment when they're toddlers as well. Absolutely. It goes by fast. So enjoy it. Yeah. The, the, the days are long, but the years are short. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I mean, I was up at four 30 this morning and I haven't gone back to bed since, but it's, uh, <laughs> it actually makes you more productive, that. which is, it uh, does. it does. Yeah. It's a good, uh, good positive externality of the newborn feeding schedule. Um, <laughs> but we're not here to talk about our kids. As I was saying, uh, we, we met in March, I believe it was like March 12th or 14th, which was a couple of weeks after the United States and the rest of the Western world uh, levied sanctions on Russia in reaction to their invasion of Ukraine. I think uh, you had some pretty prescient comments during that episode. And I, I just wanted to reach out. I know it's only four months since we last spoke, but I think considering everything that's gone on since then, uh, in the, the broader macroeconomic landscape, uh, I think it's important to get an update from your perspective because I think you've been pretty prescient uh, over the years calling this stuff. And I think um, one thing I'm very interested to get your take on is the dollar's relative strength compared to um, the rest of the FX market, particularly the end in the euro, and how these currencies are reacting to uh, the Fed's tightening policy, raising rates. Yeah, I mean, I think you've seen uh, the dollar react to uh, the interest rate differential, and I think the energy differential uh, in terms of uh, the U.S. is not short energy, and the Europeans and the Japanese are long energy, uh, or excuse me, are, are short energy. Uh, and uh, when energy has done what it has done, it has pushed the two of those countries into from current account surplus to current account deficit positions. And given their debt levels, uh, that is extremely problematic for them. And so you've seen this combination of relative interest rate moves. Uh, you've seen the energy differential um, where those two were pushed into deficits alongside the U.S., uh, but the, it's all, all the move on the margin. Uh, that have, That's also been a weakening driver. And then you've also seen uh, the U.S. Uh, Treasury spend less over the second quarter. And I think that really turbocharged uh, the uh, turbocharged the move higher in the dollar. And so I think those three factors uh, have really been drivers to that strength. And, and that's what we're seeing today. Yeah. And it's uh, really interesting to see the position that's put the Fed in because you have the dollar strengthening, you have inflation still going up. I think we're uh, almost six months in a row of uh, increasing inflation rates year on year. 9.1% was the last print. Uh, markets are pretty certain that the Fed is going to continue to raise, but it, it seems that them raising rates is is really putting stress on Japan, particularly, which um, is potentially like the canary in the coal mine. So like focusing in on Japan and the fact that they may be losing control of their year, yield curve control that they've been attempting for for many decades. Um, is Japan uh, a canary in the coal mine here, in your opinion? Uh, 
Uh, in my opinion, yes. I mean, people will frequently say the U.S. is going to be Japan. The U.S. is going to be Japan. And I, I think that's right. If you look back historically, um, I think the chart is a 10-year lag chart. But if you show the Bank of Japan's balance sheet and the, US, and the Fed's balance sheet, they've followed each other pretty closely on a 10-year lag. And so um, what that chart implies is that we're probably not too far uh, 18 to 24 months, maybe 36 months from the Fed's balance sheet going from wherever it is today, uh, 40% of GDP or something like that to, you know, heading north uh, up and to the right on that chart at a pretty, uh, at a much more aggressive rate. Um, and so uh, ultimately, I think the fiscal situation of the U.S. will be the driver to that. But I do think this, um, that that what Japan is going through uh, is not only a canary in the coal mine, but it's almost it's almost self-referential. The worse Japan gets, the the the, the more quickly the U it will force the U.S. to be Japan, basically. Um, but as we've long been saying, that given U.S. twin deficits, uh, the experience of the U.S. being Japan will feel a lot more like the U.S. being Argentina with U.S. characteristics in terms of the inflationary outcome, um, uh, etc. Yeah. And you mentioned that this is really the inflation problem could uh, be is being exacerbated on the fiscal side. Like you had Jerome Powell essentially in he didn't say it very directly, but in his comments when he was on Capitol Hill last month, essentially said, hey, we we can't really fix the supply side issues, which are really driving a lot of the problems that we're seeing in terms of uh, inflation, energy and food specifically. And uh, you actually, a tweet that you sent out yesterday was uh, was the focus of the newsletter I wrote yesterday, which is interesting that we find ourselves in a position where uh, the particularly on the energy side of things that it all all takes is a decision to um, basically come in and fix the problem. We had Hank Paulson go to George Bush in October two thousand eight and say, "Hey, there's not going to be ATM, or excuse me, there's not going to be cash in the ATMs by the end of the week. We need to do something." TARP was passed over that weekend. Now, fast forward 2022, we're in a position where uh, Germany's saying, hey, we're not going to have gas this winter. Uh, here in the US, we're saying, hey, uh, the price for a gallon of gas is headed towards $10. We need to do something. It doesn't seem like uh, the administration in control of the United States were more broadly over in Europe. Maybe Europe's moving a little bit now. That their situation is completely dire. But here in the US specifically, it doesn't seem like there's any urgency um, to to fix the problem of of increasing energy prices right now, which is insane. I I, I think yeah. Other than topical, other than optical, uh, right? I mean, Biden was in uh, Saudi yesterday, or excuse me, last week, and wanted to. You know, we we got the announcement. We we had thought going into that meeting, uh, we had written going into that meeting, we wouldn't be surprised if he came away with some sort of Saudi promise to increase production and that it would be trumpeted by the media as a big diplomacy win uh, for the Biden administration. And it, it over the weekend, we saw the headlines that the Saudis would increase production by a million barrels a day with the fine print by 2027. Um, which is it's you know it's it's, it's akin to the, the the Top Gun scene right where you know hey we you know we can get the we can get the catapults fixed in ten minutes and the and the admiral's like ten minutes this fight's gonna be over in two you know so it's kind <laughs> of right like you know hey the Saudis can increase production by a million barrels a day by twenty twenty seven well 
demand's rising by a million barrels a day per year, and U.S. shale's depleting on the legacy wells and the big four basins at 5% per month. Um, so I don't know that it really is that what Biden was able to come home with is going to make a bit, you know, a big difference other than sort of optics and political talking points. You know, to your point, what really needs to happen is a wholesale uh, industrial policy investment into domestic energy, into other domestic supply chains as well. Uh, that's really not happening yet, uh, which suggests that they need more pain to come. Right now, they do seem to be managing it from a perspective of monetary and fiscal policy, uh, which is to say um, U.S. deficits, uh, the U.S. Treasury spending was down year over year over the last couple of months. So there, there is some austerity, I guess, if you will, going on uh, out of fiscal. And then, of course, what the Fed is doing, tightening monetary. So they're, they're, they're trying to address the problem of energy inflation the way that they did historically. The problem within all of this it, it should work to get energy prices down. We've seen energy prices uh, come down off the highs. The problem with it is that the uh, legacy declines in 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 the not just U.S. shale, where the legacy declines uh, are much more pronounced than elsewhere in the world, but the installed base of legacy energy production uh, is declining at some level, uh, just given the age of a lot of these big fields, uh, and that's. You can come. You you can estimate what that number is, but the punchline is is the demand destruction uh, path to getting energy prices down, inducing a recession that we're seeing out of the U.S. Treasury, out of the U.S. Fed. Um, that can work in the very short run, but we get to a very Malthusian outcome almost if you try to induce a decline in energy prices by declining demand at a time when supplies are declining um, and uh, supplies of energy are declining. So uh, you're seeing them take some steps to address it. Um, and then the other issue too, right? So, but, but, it's, but it's, it, it's a very short-term fix. You need to invest more. And then the other problem too with, with away from this sort of Malthusian implications of, of of trying to reduce energy prices via a demand decrease when energy supplies will decrease if you don't invest in energy is the fact that Western sovereign debt levels are so high that you don't, again, you can, for the very short term, you can run a demand decrease game plan like you have for much of the last 40 years. But declining GDP when debt to GDP is 125% in the US or 200% in Japan, whatever, you're going to touch off a debt death spiral pretty quickly. And you never know sort of what triggers that until you've already triggered it. So between, uh, I, I think they're trying to manage the optics. I think they're doing some monetary and fiscal stuff in the very short run to try to manage it. But ultimately, uh, the only really politically and economically palatable way to fix it is to invest significantly in more production, not to, you know, what, what they're doing is simply not sustainable. Yeah. And what's particularly interesting with oil and gas here in the United States is that, I mean, it's twofold. It's mechanical um, where, like you just mentioned, we, we could use like a mandate from the government. It's like, hey, we're going to let you. Uh, go out and drill and we're not going to, you don't have to worry about uh, 
the hammer coming down from the Green New Deal or something like that at some point in the future. We've we've seen uh, the the CEO of Chevron come out and say, hey, we're, we're not going to build these refineries. It doesn't make any sense because of the way that uh, the political apparatus is, is posturing. And then on top of that, like, so you have these, uh, just having been close to the oil and gas sector myself, via the Bitcoin mining industry and knowing a lot of the people that are upstream or that are working upstream on, on some of these well pads, they're having a significant problem hiring people because uh, you have this employment problem where oil and gas has been demonized for almost two decades now here in the United States. And you have what should be a pool of young talent had went to college, saw that demonization. It's like, you know what? I'm not going to become a petroleum engineer. I'm going to focus on something else. And so you, not only do we have a lack of supply on the, in the actual physical energy side, but we have a lack, lack of supply on the intellectual capital side as well, which is extremely scary. Yeah, I mean, I th- there was a there was a Bloomberg story the other day that I think uh, last year the United States graduated 400 petroleum engineers nationwide, which is incredible, right? Because they just ran the major league, they just ran the the major league baseball draft yesterday, right? So there were more guys drafted into the major league baseball, which is in and of itself um, an extraordinarily small percentage of the population. There were more guys just drafted into professional baseball yesterday uh, than there were petroleum engineers graduating in the United States last year, which is a staggering dynamic in and of itself. But then to your point, um, you know, I have a, a, a relationship, been in the energy business for a very long time. You made a great point to me recently, which is in the last downturn after 2020, half, half, the, half the labor force left. They didn't sit around waiting for energy to come back. They're gone. And so now you've got to try to get them back to you know, and this is at, at sort of at the, you know, at the roughneck kind of level, right? At the, at the actual drilling where the rubber meets the road. Um, and the labor's not there, despite the fact that you make very attractive, you know, very competitive wages. Um, and I think part of that is, is they've been rug pulled enough. These cycles have been so steep. Uh, you probably get into, you know, domestic realities, right? Of like, hey, we need to move back to Oklahoma. We need to move back to the Permian Basin. Oh, by the way, these are not always, you know, you go home and tell your wife you're moving to the Permian base and you're probably, you might sleep on the couch <laughs> for a few nights, right? It's not, it, it's not a, um, you know, it's, it's not a, a cultural center per se. And that's, I mean, that's not denigrating that part of the way. It just, it's a tough place right. to live, work in, right? It's, it's tough. Midland, Midland is beautiful this time of year. It's- <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you compare it to like Riyadh, right? <laughs> Yeah. Um, right. So, um, yeah, you've got a labor problem. You've got a labor problem at at at, at sort of the actual production level. You've got a labor a, a labor problem, current and future, at the E and P level. When you look at the engineering side, uh, and and so we've got the resources, the physical resources, which is more than you can say for much of the rest of the world. But we're creating this incredible own goal scenario over, um, you know, the, the regulatory political ESG dynamic, which was, was, um, it was a position that could be held up until four months ago. And now all of a sudden, you know, Putin, Russia, the situation has reestablished, at least in some people's minds, the, 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 the preeminence of energy and energy independence and energy production as a source of economic, forget about power, just economic survival. 
um, but obviously power as well. So maybe the conversation, the problem is, is the politicians don't look at it like the head of Chevron looks at it, right? Where, okay, if I'm going to build a refinery, I don't even know how many billions of dollars a refinery costs. You got to amortize it probably over 30 to 50 years, right? So that's how you're going to NPV the project. If you make the, the the CEO of Chevron and his team amortize a refinery over five, you know, 10 years, much less five years because of the uncertainty regarding um, uh, environmental and, and energy policy, there's, there's no universe in which it's going to make sense to do that project. You're just going to generate cash, run down your wells, buy back your stock, take your company private. And, you know, in the short run, hey, that's great. But in the long run for energy security, energy stability, political stability, it's not a good outcome. No, not at all. And I mean, the ESG narrative unraveling right before our eyes, it's a beautiful thing to see. It stinks that it got to this point. But the quicker people wake up to how grave the situation is like the fact that I, I did not see that wall street journal article that said that only 400 petroleum engineers were graduating in the United States last year. That is yeah, I'm pretty sure that was enough. That's astonishing. Um, and then, I mean, we mentioned Saudi Arabia earlier, but it seems like Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia, India are beginning to buddy up to each other. Saudi Arabia is saying, Hey, China's this growing economy. They're going to take a lot of our oil. Uh, there, a lot of the demand that's driven by the U.S. is can be supplanted elsewhere in the world, particularly with emerging economies now. And uh, it could be in a point, even even though we've had this long history with Saudi Arabia over the course of five decades, uh, where uh, at some point in the future they can say, "Hey, you know what? We actually have a better economic relationship with Russia, China, and India. We're we're not going to prioritize you to to receive our oil." At which point we're here with their hats in our hand, no petroleum engineers, nobody willing to work upstream in a very precarious situation. It's, it, it is insane as how far we've gotten from the fundamental truth that energy is life. I mean, I, I really like that Doomberg has been pushing that meme. Energy is life. It is the basis of everything we do. And it, it, like, I, I really hope that that becomes a driving cause here in the United States is getting sensible energy policy back because we could unravel rather quickly if you combine uh, the lack of energy infrastructure with the over nature of our financial system. No, I think that's right. I mean, uh, you've seen the shift in Saudis flows away from the U.S. toward China uh, over the last five or eight years and the data as it is. They, they don't send us that much really anymore. Uh, however, they're in a tough spot because we still are the, I think, the most trusted provider of stability to them and 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 the Middle East, and uh, that is a lever that we continue to sort of hammer on. Uh, but ultimately, uh, the longer this goes on, this is again, it's sort of a depleting asset, or a a, a, a uh, uh, there's a time burn on this asset, right? Where um, the the less important we get economically because of what we're doing to ourselves with energy, um, the more important China becomes, the more important India becomes. They, you know, ultimately um, the, the 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 defense and stability. You you can 
anybody can put an army there. A lot of people would be very happy to put an army there in return for being able to buy energy in their own currency. Uh, and so then the question becomes one of politics, relationships, uh, et cetera. So it, it's, yeah, it, it's something that's, it, there's a sense of urgency that is not there yet that hopefully gets there soon because Doomberg is exactly right. Energy is life. Yeah. Well, turning back to Japan, that's like another interesting development that's happened over the last month is they've decided to bolster their defense forces for the first time in quite some time, which signals that maybe they're not uh, too confident in the, the ability of the U.S. to protect them uh, over in that area of the world in the South Pacific. I think either I, I don't know that they'd be that in my opinion what i think it might be it would be um getting themselves ready to tell the united states that the energy situation in japan necessitates that they start buying gas from russia in yen okay uh, i th i think maybe that might be a signpost of that where um you can see how that conversation's going to go is japan's economically in a very very tight spot uh, one of two things needs to happen you know, right now they are heading towards basically a hyperinflation of the yen, right? Where the 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 more expensive their energy gets, the more a current account deficit they run. The more current account deficit they run, the more upside their upside pressure there is on their government bond market. The more pressure there is upside pressure on yields in their government bond market. Uh, the more yen they have to print to cap the yields. The more yen they print, the more the yen goes down. The more the yen goes down, the more their energy bill goes up. The more their energy bill goes up, the more their current account surplus goes down. Wash, rinse, repeat until either the yen hyperinflates, number one, not a good outcome, and not my base case. Number two, the United States comes in and says, okay, Japan, you're our friend. We are going to print dollars and buy yen. So basically... Uh, a, a currency intervention by U.S. Treasury or the Exchange Stabilization Fund, et cetera. Uh, or number three, Japan picks up the phone and says, uh, yes, uh, Vlad, we're sorry. Will you take yen for oil? And my guess is Vlad will probably say yes, because if he gets yen, then he can turn around and buy lots of very high quality Japanese goods with that yen. And he'll probably put the rest of it into you know, anything that he doesn't spend on high quality Japanese goods. He'll probably put it into gold like he's been doing for, for a decade or more. Um, and option three for Japan to be able to credibly say that to the United States, they better have their own army because you could see the U S saying, if you do that, we're going to take all our boys, all our equipment, we're coming home and you're on your own, whatever it is, you know, a few hundred miles from China. Uh, so that's an interesting data point that I think may speak to, and maybe it's just, you know, maybe, maybe it's nothing, but to me, it might be the Japanese starting to prepare for the eventuality of having to provide for their own defense, not because the U S can't, but because a condition to the U S defense is unsustainable politically, uh, in terms of their, um, you know, in terms of, of, of their domestic political situation that we just described. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's, um, yeah, like, like we said the last time that you came on in March, like, this whole situation between Russia and Ukraine is driven by inadequate energy policy in the West, uh, particularly in Western Europe and here in the United States. And not only is Japan going to be in a situation like that, I mean, Germans are talking about chopping down trees and using wood to, to warm themselves this winter because... Uh, the natural gas from Russia is not going to be there 
due to the sanctions and Russia using that as a as a lever. And then on top of that, they're trying to restart their coal plants and they're running into uh, uh, un- pretty bad uh, coincidental instances of the Rhine River being too low. They can't even get the coal up the river to the plants to turn those back on. And at the same time, they're still planning on decommissioning a bunch of nuclear power plants. And so it wouldn't be surprising if push comes to shove October, November, December this year, uh, Germany puts their hands up, says, uncle, uh, we don't care. We need your gas. And this to me is the, the side that I find um, there's not a lot of second derivative. People haven't thought about the second derivative of all this yet, right? Which is, and I, 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 th- I'm, I, I may have said it back in March. I know I've said it a number of times since March. I think ultimately the contest between the West and, the, and, the, and Russia is a balance sheet contest. And Putin's got a much better balance sheet than Western social democracies. And what I mean by that is we get to November, December, maybe even sooner, you're going to start to see German and European production shut down for lack of gas. You're going to start seeing supply chain disruptions. And we just witnessed over the last 12 to 18 months, you don't have to take too many pieces out of the global supply chains before they get completely messed up. And so the Germans and Europe more broadly, they make a lot of very important components within global supply chains. You start taking uh, those parts out, global supply chains are going to relock up. You know, they're going to jam up again. They're going to uh, uh, start to have the same problems we had 12, 14 months ago with global supply chains. Now, we know what happened to inflation in the U.S., in the world more broadly, when global supply chains started to lock up. The CPI went up 500, 600 basis points, just conservatively. Um, So now you're looking at a situation come November, December, if the Germans have to start shutting down production to conserve gas, you can see supply chains break. You're going to see, I, I think, quite frankly, the 9% CPI we just saw in the U.S. was probably a local high because I think the economic data in the U.S. are rolling over so hard already that we're going to see in the next two months probably some, some relief on that. So let's say you get CPI in the U.S. from 900, you know, from 9%, maybe it drops to 7 6% over the next several months. Now you start having global supply chains break down because of shortages of gas in Europe, removing components uh, needed in global supply chains out of those supply chains. Global supply chains really start to jam up again. And now you're going to see another five to 600 basis point increase in CPI from the supply chain breakdown on top of from a starting point of 600, 700 basis point or six or seven percent CPI in the U.S. Now you're talking. 11, 12, 13% CPI inflation in the U.S. as we go into 2023. Now what's the Fed going to do? Because the problem is, is that now takes your CPI inflation to a level that is, I mean, we, we know these, these sovereigns can't afford interest rates above some level. We know that. You can see it. It's simple math. That number is so far below 11, 12, 13% that you're going to basically push the Fed into yield curve control uh, following the sort of soft yield curve control that the ECB is doing, that the, that the, uh, the hard yield curve control that the, J, uh, that the uh, Bank of Japan's already doing. And then now you're printing money to keep yields well below negative real rates with CPI at 11 to 13% because of the supply chain disruptions tied back to the European gas situation. So there's just not this, you know, everyone's, and then, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for it that because it, 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 it's, 
it's help, it helps my business. So being able to, hey, here's the second and third derivative. Have we not thought about this yet? Because events are moving so fast, that second derivative isn't years away. It's month, months away. Um, so we'll see. You start taking those supply chain, those, those components out of supply chains um, because you've taken gas out of the European economy. You're going to put upward pressure on inflation, and that's going to sort of um, re-intensify pressure on these Western central banks to print into inflation or, I mean, the amount that the, once you get CPI 11, 12, 13%, the amount you need to crash the U.S. economy to get inflation back down, again, can't be done because the debt's so high. You'll blow up the debt, the, the sovereign debt. So you're you're really in a position we've called Zugzwang, uh, which is a, a German chess term where you have to move, but every move you make from there is worse than it would put you in worse position than you're currently in. And it all comes down to two things that you highlight, which is decades of bad energy policy and decades of bad fiscal and economic policy. You know, we've let the debt get too high and we let production of energy get too low. And here we are. Yeah. It seems <laughs> seems like that that doom loop that uh that everybody talks about that precipitates hyperinflation, which is I mean, nobody ever wants to bring out the H word, uh, but I mean, and we've—I've said this on the show a lot. I don't, I don't know your particular thoughts on any potential hyperinflation, but hyperinflation is two parts, right? It's mechanical in terms of the expansion of the monetary base, and then it's social in terms of the, the public's confidence in the ability of the central planners to maintain. The monetary system, and obviously, uh, we're in a period of quantitative tightening right now. But as you alluded to, we get lower inflation print, and um, the the economy is sort of in a rut. They're going to have to turn the money printer back on. And at the same time, if you look at polls, um, the the public's confidence in uh, the federal government here in the United States at all time low, and the press at all time lows. Uh, there's uh, a weird sort of confluence of events lining up from the monetary and the social side that if we have a really gnarly winter with energy shortages and food prices going up um, at a time when uh, the public doesn't have a lot of confidence in the president or the central bank's ability to manage these things, you, you could see things. I mean, you mentioned Argentina earlier, but um, you could see things hitting uh, maybe an escape velocity. And who knows? Maybe I'm looking too much into it, but that is what I'm seeing lining up right now. And I, you know, it, it's when you look back historically, you know, Rogoff and Reinhardt, Reinhardt and Rogoff, two of the foremost experts on global sovereign debt, global sovereign debt crises, they did a piece in 2009 or 11. It's different this time, is the title of it, which is tongue in cheek. Um, and in the data, it shows uh, uh, something that a guy named Brian Hirschman at Hirschman Capital, brilliant guy, pointed out that last 120 years, you've had, I think, 58 instances of countries get to 130% debt to GDP. And 98% of them have defaulted on their debt, their sovereign debt. Now, that's not, we're not going, we're not going to pay that debt is one way of default. What, what he classifies as default, rightly so, I think, is, is there's restructuring which is we're not going to pay, or there is you know, financial repression, which is we're going to pay below interest rates, or there is sort of a runaway sustained inflation that, that 
inflates away the debt to GDP to back to sustainable levels. And one, 98% of instances over 120 years with 130% or more debt to GDP have been resolved in one of those three ways. And so the one, the, the one case that it has not been resolved is Japan, which we just discussed is now getting into that stage of the end game. Uh, and, and so in the investing business, 98% shots over 120 years don't come around much. That's uh, about as close to a sure thing as you get. Now, of course, critically, you have to address timing, position sizing, leverage, all these things, because you don't want to get carried out in your shield while you're waiting. Um, so the, the data suggests that you're going to have, that the, the Fed's going to have to come back. The East, they, they're basically, Western central banks, due to too much debt and not enough ener- investment in energy, domestic energy production, broadly defined over the past several decades, um, particularly when you cut Russia out of the mix, everything would be fine if they just bring Russia back into the mix. Um, you would just reorder the global geopolitical order. Um, but if you're going to keep Russia out of the mix, you're short energy. And if you're short energy, that 98% is going to come to bear. And you're either going to get defaults on sovereign debt, or you're going to get a period of runaway inflation to inflate away the debt. And so, you know, to that point, yeah, I think it sets up some 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 hairy domestic political situations in the U.S., in Europe, probably first, in Japan. Um, and, you know, I'm part and parcel to that. I've been, you know, I've spent much of my life in, you know, in Ohio. And five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I never saw Gadsden flags, which for the viewers were the the yellow snake, don't tread on me flags. I see probably two to three of those a day in the suburbs of what is still a top 50 American city. Like they, they, there is a incipient level of dissatisfaction with how things have gone, at least in this part of the world that did not exist five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, and I got to believe if that's the case here. It's probably true in other places. Um, I mean, there's a reason why Ohio has basically been a key swing state in U.S. presidential elections for 60 years. It's it's sort of right down the middle of the plate. So when you talk about uh, the, finan- the, the, the financial and energy setup, the debt setup, the energy setup, and then what has happened to the incipient political uh, dissatisfaction, there's a latent political dissatisfaction, I think, as a result of a broad array of things, um, trade policy, economic policy, foreign policy, uh, monetary policy. Uh, yeah, it sets up a very, very potentially hairy scenario. I'm, I'm hopeful that it doesn't get, to, get, doesn't get too bad, but you start to be able to see ways, see clear to ways that it could uh, if they do the wrong thing. Yeah, and that's, that's one thing I'm very interested to see moving forward is if the trend that began to become pronounced during the COVID lockdowns, which was states asserting their, their autonomy uh, against the, or autonomy from the federal government in Florida, Texas, other states throughout the country saying, hey, we're not, we're not going to go along with this federal policy. Does that begin to happen, particularly in the energy sector with nuclear? Like you had Colorado and other states completely ignore marijuana laws for years and just say, hey, we're not going to listen to the federal government. We're going to allow 
this industry to flourish here. I, I'm very interested. I would I would love as as somebody who lives in Texas now. I would love for the state of Texas to make a similar move, but uh, in regards to energy and nuclear development, just say, hey, we're not going to recognize the EPA's nuclear restrictions anymore. There's been too much red tape on this particular industry for decades, and it is blatantly obvious that we need better baseload energy here in Texas. We're just going to go build a bunch of nuclear power plants. And so with that theme in mind, with, with all these don't tread on me, flags popping up. I'm very interested to see if individual states, if, if you see an increasing of the balkanization of uh, individual states from the federal government and just begin to outright ignore them. It's interesting. On critical policies, uh, I think you could see that. I, it's a great point you made about the marijuana laws. Uh, and I would argue there's a lot of places where they were, they're much better off uh, for having ignored those laws. Um, you know, there was remember seeing a few years ago, the amount of money that was flowing into um, Colorado's tax coffers, Colorado's educational department uh, from taxes from marijuana. Uh, if, you're, if you're sending tens or hundreds of millions of dollars into education for young people as a result of taxing this, this, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think, you know, that that's probably a good thing in terms of investing for the future and future productivity. And similarly, when you, when we, what we're really talking about here is a, a need to invest in future productivity vis-a-vis energy investment. Uh, and so to the extent you start seeing, I think, I think it will become uh, acute domestic political imperatives, right? Like you said, baseload in Texas is a problem. And at some point, you know, I don't know, what do you got down there in Texas? 20, 22 million people, something like that. It's a lot of people. It's bigger than a lot of countries. And at some point, um, they need to take care of their constituents or they're going to be voted out of office. And so I could, I could see clear to that kind of thing happening, particularly in those states uh, where there is, and I tread very carefully here, I think of... There is still a, a, enough of a political consensus uh, around these types of real politic issues uh, to get that done. So places like you said, like Texas, like Florida, um, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know if there's enough water in Arizona to do nuke uh, as, as currently structured. But you know, basically, if Washington doesn't step up with leadership on this front, I think you will see leaders in different states as mandated by their reality on the ground for them begin to step up so that's i think that's an encouraging thing about sort of the, the system we have that, it, that that you can do that yeah you know it'll be very interesting to see if that recent supreme court ruling west virginia versus the epa emboldens them uh even quicker to say i didn't hey, see that what, what was that so there was a Supreme Court ruling uh, when, when the, the day their session ended, they ruled on a bunch of things. One of them was West Virginia versus the EPA, uh, which is very specific between that state and the Environmental Protection Agency. But um, the, the way many people, analysts are reading it is it, it sort of defangs a lot of the bureaucratic administrative bureaucracies, three-letter alphabet soup agencies that have been spun up at the federal level. Um, And so West Virginia won that case. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of West Virginia and um, basically said that the EPA doesn't have the authority to 
um, to uh, sort of enforce the the Clean Air Act specifically. Um, so that was a specific uh, case, but that case having the Supreme Court rule in favor of West Virginia probably has implications uh, beyond DPA specifically. That's interesting. Yeah, it's yeah because historically, right? If if you if the state they've kept states in line on this by threatening the restriction of highway dollars, uh, you know, Medicaid or Medicare, you know. Uh, dollars, et cetera. There's a, there's a lot of ways that they can force compliance, but ultimately, so that, that to me suggests, that's an interesting case because it suggests there is a pain point where the threat of loss of highway dollars, right? I mean, if you, okay, Fed say, Texas, you can't build nukes. This is all hypothetical, of course. You can't build nukes or else we're going to cut your highway funding or we're going to cut back on your Medicaid spending. Well, if you're having baseload energy issues from a political standpoint, you know, the loss of highway dollars, Medicaid dollars stinks. It's not optimal, but compared to insufficient baseload power in a state where it routinely gets to a hundred degrees with like 95% humidity, at least in the Southeast, um, it, it, it's that, that problem is an order of magnitude becomes an order of magnitude bigger than the highway dollars and the other ways the federal government can, can sort of uh, encourage compliance with, with some of these policies. So it's interesting. I had not heard that court case. We'll have to watch it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's already ruled. So it's, it's uh Supreme court said, Hey, West Virginia wins this case EPA you're you don't really have any authority here, which is good. But this goes back to a conversation we had, I think a couple episodes ago, which is what I've been trying to meme into existence, which is the idea of these Bitcoin mining permanent funds where, you, you build out a bunch of nuclear capacity base load and just use the excess energy. Maybe you an issue a muni bond or uh, have a special program where private miners come in, use that excess capacity and roll it into a permanent fund, similar to the Alaskan permanent fund that allows you to turn to the federal government and say, hey, we actually don't need your highway Medicaid dollars. Um, we have this permanent fund that's going to help us pay for those things. And so uh, I think that's a good segue into... Um, another thing that's happened between the last time we, we met was the price of Bitcoin's probably fallen by 50 or 60%. Uh, we've had a massive deleveraging event throughout our industry with a lot of centralized lenders who were taking a depositor Bitcoin and lending it out on the back end to people who have proven to take insane bets and, and completely lose their pants um, have, have caused this cascading deleveraging event in, in Bitcoin. I'm just curious if you were paying attention to that at all, uh, and if you have any thoughts on on Bitcoin's reaction to to the deleveraging. Yeah, I think it's been. I mean, I I've been saying for quite some time that I think Bitcoin is is the last functioning smoke detector uh, yeah, that the policymakers have not been able to disable. And you know, quite frankly, uh, shame on me because I've been saying it for years. And then when I you know when I watched. You know, I guess it was probably early December, right, where where Bitcoin was down like ten thousand bucks in a day or something, right? It was huge. I remember looking at it and go, ooh, um, and then continued. Um, it, it was a leading indicator of a withdrawal of liquidity, and I think when you saw the withdrawal of liquidity into the environment that you described, which uh, I, I generally agree with the characterization of, of just you know crazy leverage. Um, yeah, you've seen this massive unwind. Um, I think what 
there, there's, there's a great degree correlate to what I just said, that it's the less functioning smoke alarm is that the degree of schadenfreude around uh, held by some around what has happened to Bitcoin, um, I think is going to vanish in coming months, if not weeks, because I think what has happened to Bitcoin is just a leading indicator of what's about to happen to the broader U.S. economy, quite frankly, to the global economy, uh, if more liquidity isn't isn't re-injected by central banks. So, um, yeah, I've been paying attention to it. Um, you know, the the you know a year ago in June, said to my 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 clients that you know, hey, we're we're selling most of our Bitcoin and basically deleveraging. Um, and and personally, um, still held some. And then I started buying it back uh, later, you know, sort of late, uh, earlier this year, late last year, uh, you know, as, as it was off the peak. And in hindsight, that was way too soon to be buying it back. But I think it is ultimately, um, I think it's, it's just a sign of, of the liquidity. It's, 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 it's telling us what's happening to liquidity ahead of other metrics. Um, you know, the euro dollar curve showed tightening liquidity. Uh, in January, you know, so a month after Bitcoin, uh, and has continued to show that problem. So I think it's it's doing what it's supposed to do. I just it's 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 actually a free market and <laughs> and, and an accurate smoke detector. So it it um, it's 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 yelling fire. Yeah, no, it's uh, and I don't, I'm not going to try and predict. Bitcoin's price movement one more one way or the other, but the volatility that we've experienced this year, um, and considering everything that's going on in the overarching macro landscape, uh, it reminds me of that that famous chart of the price of or the percentage change of the price of gold during Weimar's hyperinflation, where it's just up, down, up, down. We might just be in one of those radical down periods. Um, you know, and it's again when. When I look back, I look back to review sort of what I've written and said over the, you know, at six months intervals and just, just to, just to always try to get better as an analyst. And I look back, I wrote a piece for clients on January 21st, 2022, and I put that chart up and I literally annotated as here is where we are right now for Bitcoin, gold and other liquidity proxies. And it was at sort of the top of one of those as it was rolling over for one of those periods where it then went down as there was a belief for a period of time where there was a period of time where as you were getting this Weimar hyperinflation, there was a belief, hey, we need to sell gold to buy Reichsmarks because they're going to tighten this time. They can get out of this. And shame on me as an analyst to just, okay, own dollars and own energy and go to the beach. Like that was that was the right call, and instead I got too cute by you know hey well I think they're going to have to pivot. Quite frankly, the mistake was at least as back as January. I can't believe they're actually going to go through with tightening. Are they really that dogmatic? Are they really that short sighted? And the answer is yes, they are that, that dogmatic. Yes, they are that short sighted, um, and and adjusted to that by by you know February, and then things started changing with the Russia situation. But I think that's exactly right. I think it's ultimately. Bitcoin is doing what gold did in that scenario where you're getting this fiscal, uh, this, this, this bursting global sovereign debt bubble. Um, the volatility, we've been saying for a while, the volatility is going to be face peeling. And here we are. And, and like everybody loves face peeling volatility when 
when it's doing this and nobody loves Facebook and volatility when it's doing this. And so it's important. I think, I don't think anything's changed with it. I just think we're in that period of time where, Hey, you know, sell gold by Reichsmarks because, you know, they're going to, they're going to QT. They're going to put the economy in a recession and that's going to fight inflation. Good luck. Not, not with sovereign debt where it is. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I mean, having been through, uh, been in Bitcoin for eight years, I saw, I saw a plunge from 1400 to $180 go up to 17,000 down to, down to three, up to 69, now down to 22, wherever it is today. Uh, it's 17 and a half, I believe. And this has been the normal sort of market environment for Bitcoin for the first 13 years of its existence. And my nine years of, of being around it. But it's funny, like you mentioned, the shouting for right no matter how many times Bitcoin does this, it's always going to die this time around. Um, yet still producing blocks, still enabling peer-to-peer transactions and enforcing the 21 million uh, Bitcoin cap, um, which is, a, which is again, it's Bitcoin and gold specifically. Like, it's another thing highlighting the energy problem uh, is extremely important, but uh, the energy problem is exacerbated by the money problem. Right? You have to fix the money. If the money is inherently broken at the core of the system, it leads to this misallocation of capital where you can virtue signal about uh, moving to a green economy because you can just print dollars and subsidize the build out of these these unreliable um, renewables at, at, in favor of, of reliable baseload like nuclear coal, that gas, and producing more oil, um, which is another thing I hope that as the volatility increases and things get more dire here in the West with, with energy and food inflation, um, more importantly, energy and food scarcity, where people just simply aren't going to be able to get access to it. Um, either they're going to be priced out or it's just not going to be there. Um, that's one thing I worry about in the midst of that chaos, if it does come, people just to get too insane to take a step back and recognize the core of the problem which which is the fact that we've broken the money yeah i think they i think ultimately it 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 is a it's it's a currency system problem right i i I, and i've said before that i i think of bitcoin essentially as an energy proxy um you know when you're when you're it's it's a neutral reserve asset with an energy tie it's the same thing, you know, gold is the same thing. It's a neutral reserve asset with an energy tie. They, both of those should move with energy, the marginal price of energy over time um, with, with volatility. And that's not something uh, policymakers want to see uh, in, this, in, in the current system because it's showing inflation given the debt levels and that is an indictment of their system it's a problem for the system that is debt backed but ultimately disabling the smoke alarms doesn't change the fire right it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that the building's on fire it just means more people are going to be very uh, uncomfortable um best case uh at some point and that's kind of what they've been doing with gold for a long time right is you know the what the the, the the original sin a little bit i would argue of the monetary system as a, the post 71 monetary system was really when they began to um, disarm gold as a smoke detector. Um, 
when when you disarm that via the expansion of of unallocated derivatives centered in London, um, that allowed short term. Hey, great party on Wayne, party on Garth, take on debt, look no inflation. Uh, but again, ultimately that game can continue uh, as long as there's no connection to the physical world, and that's where the energy comes in. Is once you take that so far that you the, the 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 you need a growing supply of cheap energy to make all that debt money good and when it becomes increasingly apparent that the supplies of the infinite supply effectively infinite supplies of cheap energy will not be there as a result of either geology uh in in some cases uh or policy uh in others that begins to indict that begins to indict the debt that begins to that this debt can't get paid back in in real terms real terms being energy and you begin to see uh financial markets move toward base true base money and true base money is energy and gold uh and 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 we're living through that and you know, it ties back to what policymakers are trying to do to fight this in, in some case in the West, which is, well, we'll just kill demand. You, that, that, that can work for a little bit. It can. Hey, we're seeing it. You know, you've knocked down Bitcoin, you've knocked down gold, you've knocked down oil a little bit, but it's not, not a good outcome politically for humans, et cetera. Well, exactly. So like, think about that. You had Larry Summers coming out like, yeah, maybe we need to get unemployment up a bit. It's like these people are willing to sacrifice the well-being of citizens just to to fix the Frankenstein that they've created. It's insane. It's completely convoluted. No, it takes me back to the section in the in the movie The Big Short, right? Where where you know uh, Brad Pitt. Yeah, he's yeah. like right. He's like stop dancing, stop dancing. He's like you know for every one percent that unemployment goes up, forty thousand people die, and they both go no. He goes literally, you're dancing because hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. I don't care if you make money, just stop fucking dancing, right? And that's it's fascinating. It, it's taken one cycle for us. It, all people are cheering an increase in unemployment, and it's it's a much more complex issue around a whole bunch of things. With, you know, third third rail type issues. But the point is, is that to your point, you 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 demand destruction is not something that should be being cheered when there's a better option available, which is invest in the infrastructure, invest in energy, invest in nuclear, invest in this stuff to support, uh, to bring prices down. The markets are giving you a signal. The answer is not, you know, shrink the economy, you know, raise unemployment, kill 40,000 people for every 1% unemployment goes. The answer is, is invest in energy, invest in infrastructure. There, there's the, I find myself getting frustrated as a father because you just go, what, what, what are they doing? Like they're making the future worse to try to make, you know, make the optics of today better for a brief period of time. Yeah. And I think we've got to wrap up here. So, but another thing with the labor market, I mean, obviously the big discussion in the last couple of months is, are we in a recession? And all the analysts I've seen, according to CNBC and your typical analyst points to unemployment, like, Oh no, unemployment's, relatively low labor market still strong but nobody brings in the participation rate which was completely obliterated in the aftermath of, of the lockdowns in 2020 like yes the unemployment rate is relatively low but millions of people dropped out of the, the labor force aren't even 
uh, calculated that denominator anymore. It's, I don't know if I'm just reading too much into it, but that's something that seems like an important variable that should be brought up in this analysis. Well, it is. And I, I would even take it a step, you know, simpler than that, which is, you know, in May of last year, uh, Raphael Bostic at the Atlanta Fed was saying, well, we can't tighten yet uh, because unemployment is still too high. Right. And and so, yeah, inflation has picked up a little bit, but it's transitory and an unemployment is still too high. Unemployment is a lagging indicator. Unemployment, if you're running, if, if, if you are managing an economy, managing monetary policy by looking at employment, it's like driving your car looking in the rearview mirror. It is. I've sworn I'm going to stop being so. Uh, so it's a bad idea. I'm going to be I'm going to be. I'm going to be gentle. It's a bad idea. Um, and so here we have the same Raphael Bostic a year later saying we're not in a recession because unemployment is low. My head wanted to explode. So you were wrong on inflation on the way up because you were looking at unemployment. Wham, you run into the inflation wall because you're driving with the, you're driving looking at the rearview mirror. And now you're saying there's not a, a recession because unemployment is still good. Now, even if you look at um, a good leading indicator of where employment, unemployment is going to go is uh, part-time for economic reasons, right? So basically, it's a measure of people that are say, saying they're working part-time uh, for economic reasons. In other words, business is not good enough for them to be working full-time, so they're working part-time. And that number bottomed like two, three months ago. So unemployment's about to go up. Uh, and these guys will react to it late once again. In the meantime, they're debating 75 or 100 basis points. Okay. I mean, it's the same thing as debating how transitory inflation was a year ago. So it's, um, it's frustrating to me because they could be doing a much better job than they are. But at the end of the day, um, I think you just have to realize that politicians. Yeah. And that's something I've been writing in my newsletter a lot is at the end of the day, what we have to realize as individuals, as local communities, as people who are citizens of states and not a federal government, that it, it is going to come down to individual action to fix this problem. We cannot um, depend on on the politicians to get us out of the problem that they created. We cannot depend on Jerome Powell and others to get us out of the, the monetary problem they created. We've got to really get our hands dirty. And as citizens, we have to take responsibility um, as well, where it's like, all right, um, we've been sitting here waiting for these people to fix these problems that they've created for quite a while now. Like, when are we going to um, pull up our bootstraps, tighten the belt, and say, all right, we're going to begin building nukes here, ignoring federal policy. We're going to begin adopting uh, currencies that compete with the dollar, whether it be gold or Bitcoin, and using them and, and messaging to them, like, hey, we, we're not going to wait for you anymore. I think that's another thing I would like to see as things progress throughout the rest of this year. And if energy and food inflation continues to increase as people taking things into their own hand, going, going and shaking the rancher's head and saying, hey, how can I help you out? Um, uh, really pushing for state level energy policy that, that separates itself from the federal government. And there, as much as we're complaining about the actions of these policymakers, there is uh, a bit of responsibility that we as individuals, citizens can begin to take up as well start a movement there yeah you vote with your wallet ultimately and that that will start to uh move policy and i think that there is an awakening that i think has happened in washington to a certain degree post covid with supply chains 
Uh, now you're starting to see a bit of a debate around industrial policy, which is very encouraging to me. Uh, I absolutely, industrial policy should have been started in this country 15 years ago, um, certainly post great financial crisis. Uh, you had a number of business luminaries calling for it, um, but uh, lots in Washington were against it. A lot of the sort of you know, usual suspect neoliberal economists uh, against it. Uh, but now that we have gotten to the point of widespread concern about infrastructure, domestic production, reshoring, national security issues have all become tied together very closely, so closely that even um, willfully blind uh, uh, policymakers in Washington have refused to see it. They now they have to they have to be part of that discussion. And so ultimately, you know, to me, one of the great things about this country is what Winston Churchill said, which is the Americans always do the right thing after they've exhausted all the alternatives. And we've pretty much exhausted all the alternatives. So I, I think we're starting to see early signs of us doing the right things. I'm just uh, you know hopeful that we do them a little faster. All right. <laughs> <laughs> time is of the essence here freaks there's a lot a lot falling apart if you haven't noticed i i, I agree and, and co-sign that we need we need a bit more urgency here um and like you said in that tweet it's just like hey it's a decision you just change the rules and allow people to go about and do things that's that's the crazy thing it's to an extent it's just simply mental it's just a a decision a will actually do things we, we I watched this great. Yeah, I said so. My my family has a uh, um, me and my wife and three boys. We have a, a group text, right? And um, I sent uh, a, a video of the coach of Ole Miss's baseball team telling his guys this great two minute speech. Where he said, "Look, in you know nineteen, I think it was fifty nine, right? When Roger Bannister ran a sub four minute mile. At any rate, that's not important. Roger Bannister, first guy run sub four minute mile up to that point." Hundreds of years, people had tried it. It was considered to be impossible, that the human system could not do it. Human body couldn't handle it. And then he ran it, a sub-four-minute mile. And at first, they didn't even believe it. Like, they measured the track, and it was actually six inches long. So he absolutely ran a sub-four-minute mile. And then, like, two weeks later, he did it again, and, like, three other guys did. And then in the next year, 138 guys did. And then since, hundred over 100,000 humans have run sub-four-minute miles. And so there was just... This the the point of the Ole Miss baseball coach's speech, and the point I was trying to imp impress upon my, my my kids was, it's all a construct in your mind. So much is just a construct in your mind, and that's exactly what this is. Which is just it just requires a change in thinking. And once you get the change in thinking, it's like the hundredth monkey concept, right? It's like you know, da -da 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 and then it's like a few people, a few people, everybody. So. We're starting in, I think we're in the few people spot still, but we're moving rapidly to the, oh, okay, you know, everybody adoptions of, of, of moving towards some of these policies. So hopefully, um, you know, it's, it's, it's encouraging. Yes. And I think that is the most positive line of thinking we've had in this discussion. Probably <laughs> the best place to stop the conversation. I know you have to get on with your day, but Luke, it is, it is always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It was great catching up again, Marty. Uh, where can we find out more about you? Forest for the Trees LLC. Uh, where can people sign up for? Sure, uh, your sure. So, 
they go to our website at fftt-llc.com. Uh, they can learn a lot more about our different uh, institutional and mass market products. And uh, they can find me on Twitter at, as well, at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. Go follow him, Freaks, one of the best on Twitter. And one of my favorite reoccurring guests here. Luke, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on again. Peace and love, Freaks. Okay.